Hi, fellow cults and crime fans. We are cults and crime, and I'm Nicole. Jamie is not currently here with me, but we have something extra special for you. So, as you well know, Jamie is in charge of all the cults while I do crime. And Jamie happened to get an interview with a past cult member herself. She's an author of a book, and her story is bone chilling and absolutely crazy. So I don't want to leave too much. So without further ado, this is the story of Zenik. Okay, so how about you just introduce yourself? Hey, um, my name is Helen Zuman. I am the author of the memoir, Making in Captivity, about my five years in a cult called Zendik Farm, which had a radical take on sex and relationships. Okay, so what made you join this organization? Well, I found out about it in a book called The Communities Directory, um, which is still around both online and in print. It's a an encyclopedia of communities all over the country. Most of them are in North America. I found this book when I was in college, my senior year at Harvard. And before I graduated, I got a grant to travel, to explore these communities. I was especially interested in homesteading and learning how to grow my own food and kind of developing practical skills that I had never learned in school. So I visited a number of places the, the summer after graduation and by the fall time I hadn't really found any place that I really clicked with and so I so I went back to the directory and instead of starting with with the A's I went to the Z's and I and I found Zendik and I was interested in it for a number of reasons one thing was they said that they had the youngest average age of any community in the world. I don't know how they knew that, but um, but I had just I had spent my senior year of, of college in a in a co-op house um, with a bunch of other you know misfits, and I I was really in, interested in finding another sort of more permanent version of that kind of camaraderie um, in kind of a back to the land sort of setting. They also said they had apprenticeships, which mean which meant they had a they, they had a way to deal with new people. And other places I had been to, I showed up and they didn't really know what to do with me. And and also Zendik built itself as as an as a place for artists, a place where you could learn both homesteading, you know, practical skills, and also do art. And I had majored in art in college, and I was a writer as well. And so that was that was a plus. I was inter- I, I read the description in the directory. I went to their website. This is 1999, so the website was pretty basic, but it was there. And I read some stuff on the website that resonated with me, especially this one article about the big lie, saying that everybody's lying all the time. Nobody ever gets honest, you know, in in the mainstream. And that spoke to me. You know, at that time, I felt like business as usual made no sense to me, and I just wanted people to get real. So that was cool. Um, and then I called the farm, talked to someone on the phone, asked some questions, got sort of hazy answers, but I didn't really know to question that. And then I bought a bus ticket from New York City, where I was living at the time, down to North Carolina, figuring I would stay for two weeks. And if I didn't like it, I would go, I would go walk the Appalachian Trail. And then I ended up giving them all my money and staying for a lot longer. 
Okay. So you said part of this was part of a grant process through your college. Was that also involved in going to Zendik or is that over by the time you joined Zendik? Um, so I had, the, the amount of money I got was $13,500. This was an incredible amount of money for me. I had never had anything like this in my entire life. And I was, ex I was extremely worried about spending it wrong. Um, therefore, in, in the first like four and a half months after graduating from college, I was, I was so frugal. I actually slept in ditches sometimes when I was out traveling, so I wouldn't have to pay for a place to stay. By the time I got to Zendik, I still had 13,000 of that $13,500. So, and, and I, and, and at the time I got there, I also conceived myself as still being on this journey of exploration. Like I was still looking around. I didn't go there expecting to move in. I went there thinking this was one more stop on my journey to learn about communities. Okay, so you said they had sort of an internship program. Can you tell us about that? Um, well, um, they called it an apprenticeship program. And when I showed up, I was asked for a $300 apprenticeship fee to kind of, you know, cover the costs of, you know, dealing with me and um, orienting me and stuff. I think at other times in the farm's history, there might have been something more like an actual apprenticeship program, but in my time there, there really wasn't. It was just, you know, I showed up and I was shown around and oriented to how things work there. Um, and, and then I just, I just was pulled into the business of everyday life, just, you know, started you know being on work crews and being in meetings and just doing what everybody else did there wasn't there wasn't any formal there was i, I mean i, I was i learned i did learn a lot because i didn't know anything about a lot of what we were doing but there was no formal training program at all okay so was this fee did they tell you what the fee included was it like food housing clothes anything like that or they just told you it was a fee for being here yeah, it was it was just a it was just a it was just a fee for being there, kind of a kind of an entry fee. They also called it a seriousness fee because they didn't want people just showing up and freeloading. So they wanted to know that it actually mattered to you to be there. But no, it wasn't attached to any particular exchange. Okay, can you describe your first few days? Like were you scared? Were you anxious? What drew you in to make you stay longer? Yeah, so when I first got there, I, you know, I was sort of fascinated and excited and also feeling, feeling terribly awkward. I, like I said, I took the bus down to, uh, down to North Carolina and I was supposed to be picked up by a couple of Zendix doing the weekly shopping trip. And I just sat at the bus station for like six hours. At the time that didn't mean anything to me. Later on, I kind of understood like, oh yeah, that's how, that's how Zendix roll. Like the lower down you are in the pecking order, you know, the less regard you're given. So I spent a while at the bus station, got picked up. Um, I, you know, got shown around to the various buildings, the barns, um, the farmhouse where some people slept. We all slept, most of us were sleeping in, a, in, in a, the loft of a barn at the time. Um, because the farm was pretty new to North Carolina and there was still a lot of building going on. So there, there weren't truly indoor spaces for everyone to sleep. So I was shown around. 
I remember my first my first dinner at the farm. I was I was sitting in the in the farmhouse living room on the floor. You know, it, it, there were I don't know forty or fifty of us all all eating dinner in this one room, and I I heard one woman say to another something about going on a date that night, and and I thought, oh, she's she's going going out to a nearby town to to have dinner and a movie with her boyfriends, but she was eating dinner. She had a plate of food in her hand. Like, what did that mean? So that was kind of mysterious to me, and I like I said, I I was sort of just thrown into doing work, you know, raking the leaves out of the culvert along the driveway, um, very painstakingly, um, uh, we called it tape work. We were inserting the tiny little pieces of paper into the cases of cassette tapes of, of Zendik music that we were gonna then mm-hmm. sell on the street. So, I, I, you know, helping to, to, build, to build some kind of a concrete block shed. So I was doing all these things. I mean, I, I was really kind of enthralled by the people. Um, they, were, they were mostly pretty young. They, to me, they, they were all like really attractive, um, you know, really physically fit, really knowledgeable, really sure of themselves. So I was just sort of taking it all in, also having some criticisms. You know, to me, like then it's called the outside world, the death culture, meaning this place where that, that's heading towards ecocide and where no one, no one is fully alive because they're lying to each other. In my view, heavy metal music was part of the death culture. But the Zenix listening to, listening to heavy metal music and they watched movies. And I'm like, well, isn't that square? Isn't that of the death culture? So I was having some criticisms, but you know, just sort of going along with things. Then pretty soon after I got there, I learned what how dating actually worked. I learned that there was this third party system hitting someone up for a date. And, and that sounded really cool to me. Like I didn't yet get the kind of course of possibilities of that. So I just thought that was awesome. So in, in, in my first few days there, there were moments of doubt, like when, when they were talking about this revolution they were starting and like, I'm like, well, you're listening to heavy metal music. How can you be starting a revolution? You don't seem very revolutionary to me. But at the same time, I was just, I was surrounded by all these people who were like, so, you know, bright and vivacious and accomplished and, and so very sure of themselves. And I, you know, I, I admired that. Like I, I wanted to, I wanted what they were having. I wanted to believe in what they were believing in. That makes a lot of sense. You know, we do a lot of, we talk about a lot of different cults and stuff, and that's kind of usually what gets people is like, they're just so sure of everything. I want to be sure. So you said there was like a hierarchy, like the longer, was it the longer you were there or the more money you gave? What could you do to like rank up in the hierarchy? Yeah, there were, there were a number of ways you could climb the hierarchy. For one, best way to climb the hierarchy was to be in the blood family of Errol, the leader. If you were born into it, that was, that was the best in. So, and Errol, Errol had, Errol and her late partner, Wolf, Wolf had died by the time I arrived. They had one daughter, Fawn, um, and Fawn had, Fawn ended up having a few children. So Errol, Fawn, and Errol's grandchildren, they were all automatically like way up there. Um, Another great way to climb in the hierarchy was to be in a relationship with Errol or Fawn. Bringing, bringing a bunch of money to the farm, handing over an inheritance or whatever, that was good too. That could help. Being really good at selling. Selling meant 
going out on the street to concerts and festivals and street corners in the Northeast and the Midwest and the Southeast and selling our self-produced magazines and CDs and stop bitching, start a revolution bumper stickers. Being good at that, that could help. And sticking around for a long time was useful too. But sticking around for a long time wasn't a guarantee. And there was also, there was a lot of up, up and down, you know, in people's, in people's status, you know, like someone would be, you know, Errol's favorite one month and then in the, in the doghouse another month. But, 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 but I would say generally the cast of characters who were sort of up there in, in Errol's inner circle did remain fairly constant, you know, until, until some of the people left altogether. What type of control did the leader implement on you guys? Were you on a really strict diet? Were there times where you had to be awake? Were you guys constantly tired? That kind of stuff? Well, I would say we were we were occupied pretty much all the time. I didn't I, I had very little free time. So I just I didn't have much time to really just be by myself or or think about things. We were living kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's about about maybe 45 minutes from Asheville, which was the nearest. I didn't know how to drive, so I automatically couldn't go anywhere on my own. Other most other people did know how to drive, but pretty much once you really moved in, you had to sign your vehicle over to the farm. So no one had their own vehicle. You know, you'd have to get permission to get in a vehicle and go somewhere. So we kind of couldn't go anywhere. So we were just with each other all the time and not really not really exposed on our own to other people. Um, another aspect of that was the only telephone I had access to at the farm was in the farmhouse living room, which was the busiest spot on the farm. So sure, I could call my mother or my sister, but I couldn't have privacy while I was doing that. Eventually, we, we did have a library at the farm, but it was not very inspiring. <laughs> the books in this library, there was a lot of like, like a cult and like, I don't know, like healing yourself with green juice type books. And we, so we, and there was, I remember one person like going to the library and getting books, but didn't really have access to library books, no newspapers, you know, no TV. I didn't watch TV anyway, but that wasn't around. No radio, little bit, little bit of internet, but not a lot. So we just didn't, didn't have kind of access to other media besides Zendik media. And also over time, I came to believe that other media and other art that it was all corrupt and so even if I, I had access to it I wouldn't have wanted to go near it and then of course sexuality was a major channel of control you know just that we we weren't just sort of doing what we wanted that there were there were these sort of rituals around sexuality so that was also a big one. Oh, and another very important one is that none of us had our own money you know when I showed up I had this money, I very quickly handed it over. And that was common. If you if you wanted to commit to the farm, you were gonna have to turn over your money, you know, at some point. So we didn't have our own money. It's it's hard to go anywhere and do anything without money. Did any of that scare you? Like as you're handing over, you know, basically you can't get away. There's not really much ways to talk to the outside. Did that scare you at all? Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I knew that if I really, if I really, really wanted to leave, I could call my mother 
and she would send me money for a bus ticket, you know? So I didn't feel totally trapped in that way, but I do remember when I handed over the money, I did feel kind of terrified because I had just made this huge commitment and foreclosed all these other options. Fear of like, what if I did the wrong thing? After I hand, handed over the money, that was when I discovered that that the farm had these levels, had, had actually official levels in its hierarchy, including the fact that everyone wore wristbands of a different color and that showed where you were in the hierarchy. And that really freaked me out because I had come from this hyper competitive, you know, college scene. And I, and I thought finally I was through with school and I could be in a place where I wasn't being ranked and now I was being ranked. So that was like, that was a big blow to, to find that out. But I had already given the money. It wasn't coming back. And so I was kind of, so, so, so what I did was I just decided to make it the right decision by kind of doubling down on my investments and getting the most I could out of having made this commitment. Okay. So with the hierarchy, was there certain names for each step or was it just color coded? Um, yes, there were, there were names at, at the top, the purple wristbands, um, that was, those were the family that was like Errol and her kids and, and, you know, Errol's boyfriend and Fawn's boyfriend and some people who had been there for a long time. Um, there were, then there was the, the, the family apprentices who they had, they were gray, they were gray and they were sort of working their way up, uh, working their way up the ladder. Then there were core that was royal blue. Usually they had been there for like, you know, two, two or more years. They were sort of solid, committed, you know. Um, then there were core apprentices. They were brown wristbands and they had been there usually for a little less time, kind of working their way up to being considered fully committed. Then Zendik apprentices, which is, that was green. That was wristbands I got when I got a wristband, you know, just people who had just shown up. And then there was this other category, um, Family Warrior, and they had pink wristbands. And Family Warrior, I think there were only two people in that category, and that was for people who'd been at the farm for a really long time, but kind of weren't evolving. They were just sort of like hanging out over on the side. Was the Warrior category seen as a punishment, or was it just seen as like, oh, you're fine wearing where you are? Um, kind of both. I mean, I, I think it, 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 it was a way, in a sense, it might have been a way to take the pressure off these people who had, who had been there for a long time, but weren't necessarily going anywhere, according to, according to the higher ups. But it was also kind of a message like, you're stagnating, you know, and, and, and you know, Zendik was supposedly all about evolution, you know, all about becoming these, you know, better and better versions of ourselves. So, you know, if you weren't evolving, you were, you were not going anywhere. So you said he kind of, the crux of the organization was that they thought the outside world was dangerous and wrong and corrupting. Did he preach about this or was it just something that was generally talked about? Wolf, the male founder, he, he did a ton of writing uh, speaking that was recorded. He actually had a, a cable access TV show in Austin, Texas, back when the farm was in that area. I believe he came up with the term death culture. He talked about it. He wrote about it. He actually, I think originally spelled it with a K to sort of invoke like 
I, would, I think to invoke Hitler, to, to, to invoke Hitlerism. Um, so we would call it the DK for short. Um, but yeah, that was something that was sort of, I think, baked into the Zendik worldview, you know, from the beginning, that we had to separate ourselves from the outside world. It wasn't, I mean, Wolf had written about it extensively. It wasn't something that we just came up with ourselves. Okay, so the male leader, you, do you believe he really believed in this? Yeah, I, I do. I do. And I mean, he, he might have had the assistance of, I, he, de he definitely took a lot of drugs and that might have helped him to believe everything he believed. I think it also helped a lot that he had Errol as his first follower. They met, um, he was about 20 years older than she was. And when they met, she had just been through some serious trauma, which may have predis predisposed her to latch on to him. I don't know. But I think he, he, he was he was coming up with all these ideas and doing all this writing and being this far out sort of beatnik guru type in the late 60s. You know, he started gathering followers. And I think that that, you know, helped him um, to kind of amp up his belief in in everything he was saying and to keep building on it. So do you believe that his wife, even after he passed, believed in this or she was just kind of keeping up with it because she wanted to honor his memory? I think that I think that she did believe in it. I mean, I think that there there were times when she acts of cynical manipulation, like saying one thing and doing another. But as far as whether she believed this philosophy was the truth, yes, I think she she did actually believe that it was the truth. And I and I've been I've been wondering like how it must have been for her, you know, um, to to have this 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 story over the years that Zendik was going to really was going to really change things but i would say that she 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 continued to believe at least for as long as i knew her that wolf had the truth and that she was carrying on his mission of giving this truth to the world okay so you said you guys had like a bumper sticker tagline do you know where that came about yeah, so the bumper sticker said "Stop bitching, start a revolution." We also had T-shirts that said the same thing. There was a T-shirt. I remember this T-shirt um, that had a, a, a an image on it of a woman with a baby on her back walking away from a scene of nuclear apocalypse, and the caption of this picture was. I believe we have undeniably valid grounds for a revolutionary action. So that slogan just came out of came out of this idea that like, you know, the world's fucked up, humans are killing everything ecologically speaking, and the only the only valid response is to start a revolution. And we would have set a revolution of relationships, like, you know, replacing competition with cooperation and aligning with honesty and bringing about something we called equilibrium, which was a form of governance that would put ecology first. You know, it, it wasn't a terribly bad idea. It just wasn't what we were actually doing. Did you find it kind of weird that you guys were trying to get rid of competition, but there was active competition in you guys' group to go up in the hierarchy? Yeah, so the competition to ascend in the hierarchy, like, it was not stated. I mean, that when I lived there, I I was aware of my own inner experiences of like 
envy and jealousy and competitiveness, but I, I, I wasn't able to recognize that as a systemic thing. That would have been way too threatening to my commitment to Zendik to, to, to acknowledge. And also we were always talking about our, our, our competitiveness as, as something implanted, implanted in us by our corrupt upbringing in the death culture. So any competitive thoughts that I might, that I might have or desire for Errol's favor, I would just tell myself and other people would tell me, oh, that's just your, that's just your programming. You know, that's not what it's about at all. And Errol's not playing favorites. Like you're just, you're just off in the wrong track and you just have to work harder to get, to get rid of that. Okay, so they kind of made you internalize that instead of saying like, "Hey, we are doing competition." Right. Yeah. No, we we were we were not admitting that there was competition for spots in the hierarchy for Errol's favor for any of this. And I was, you know, I was told when I first expressed dismay at the fact of these wristbands that I was told there wasn't any hierarchy, that it was just my competitive conditioning that was making me see that see it that way. But actually the people, you know, in the family, et cetera, they were, they were just people who understood the philosophy better and were taking more responsibility. Okay, so earlier you said one of the ways you could go up in the hierarchy was to recruit other members. Did you ever do that? Yes, I, yes, I did. So when, when we were out on the street selling, we would, our main goal was to make money and also if we were to you know meet someone who seemed especially interested it was totally okay to be like hey if this is really exciting to you you should come visit our farm and check it out so i i'm sure i said that a number of times people i met in the street who seemed enthusiastic um also when i first got to the farm i remember emailing this guy who i had hitchhiked with a little bit in newfoundland before coming to the farm and I told him, hey, Jesse, like I, I found what I'm looking for. You should come here too. That didn't work. I also remember um, having a conversation on the phone with, uh, with a, a young man who was thinking of moving to the farm from Ohio and he had student loans. And he was like, what should I do? I have student loans. If I move to the farm, I won't have an income. And I was like, no problem. I have student loans too. I just defaulted. And the debt collectors called and they tried to guilt trip me and then they gave up. Don't worry about it. You can do the same thing. And he did end up coming. Um, and another, the other instance I can think of was one time I was selling at a music festival in Chicago and I, I met this guy who I just was incredibly attracted to, just sort of instantly super attracted to. And, and I told him, you know, I told him he should come visit and stuff. He didn't, but that was sort of another attempt at recruitment. Okay, so when you were trying, when you were telling people that you walk, like, hey, come here, I love it, were you doing that because you actually loved it and you wanted to share that, or were you doing it in order to get favor? I was not doing that in order to get favor. I think when I was telling people to come visit, I was doing it partly out of like real enthusiasm for whatever connection I was making with that person at the moment. And also, I was doing it because because despite the hardships of living at Zendik and the misery that I was often in, I still believed that this was like the only, you know, righteous, honest way to live. And all the pain and suffering were for a good cause. So from my perspective, even, even the most miserable day at Zendik 
was you know more valuable in the big picture than some you know happy-go-lucky day in the outside world so i felt like i was giving people a chance to come experience this you know revolutionary way of living that was difficult but was was awesome okay so can you tell us about your day-to-day life like what are those hardships that you guys went through what was the joys yeah so there were kind of two two distinct varieties of day at Zendik. There were days out selling on the street and then farm. Um, when we were out selling, so when, when, when we went selling, we would bring everything we needed with us um, in, our, in our van, like all our bedding, our water, um, our ammo. That was the stuff we were selling. Um, you know, pots and pans, food, everything. So we're sort of the self-contained unit. We would find um, places to stay with, you know, sympathizer if people we met in the street. Um, so on, a, on an average selling day, we get up, you know, kind of early-ish in the morning, um, make our breakfast, get our stuff together, um, and then go out on the street or go to our, you know, go wherever we were selling and just like be out in the street approaching strangers all day from maybe like the late morning till midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. or whatever. And that varied if we were selling at a concert or like a shorter event, then it might be shorter. Um, But that was, those were just like long days of just relentlessly approaching people, trying to get them to buy our stuff and, and, and um, give us money. Um, And then we would go to bed exhausted and get not enough sleep and get up the next morning and do it again. So selling for me um, was often like really hard. I was kind of an innately shy person. So I was pretty terrified of it at first. Um, I did eventually gain some level of competence, but you know, there were just these hours and hours and days and days of like, like approaching people and being like, Hey, here's our magazine. And they're like, I don't give a shit. And just facing that rejection over and over again. And then not only, not only experiencing the rejection, but also feeling like, Oh my gosh, I'm a bad Zendik. Um, you know, this is my philosophy. I'm, I'm bad. I'm, 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 it's it's my corruption. I, my attitude is wrong. So that compounded it. However, selling could also be a source of great joy. I mean, I, I, had, I had times of total ecstasy out on the street um, when I got, well, our, our comfort was getting on. Um, it, it, was, it was a real thing. You know, there were days when I would go out in the street and I would, I would just be talking to people. Often these were days when I decided not to say the same thing over and over again, but to sort of improvise and actually respond to what people were saying to me. Sometimes, I just got into this flow where everyone wants to talk to me and wants to give me money. And, but, but beyond that, beyond just like making money, which was great, I, I did have experiences of really feeling like I loved everyone I was talking to. And that was amazing. It was almost like a drug, but it was also real because I think I was tapping into a true sense of connection that, that is actually there. Um, days on the farm, Usually, you know, get up kind of early, go to the outhouse, you know, have breakfast, get on whatever work crew I was I was on. I, I, I did a lot of cooking, so I spent a lot of time making meals in the kitchen, raking, whatever, like all, all, all these, all, all, like all these, um, all these projects involved in, you know, turning this, this piece of land from kind of this wild overgrown place into a homestead. And, you know, and then we would have, we would have meetings, Sometimes they were scheduled, sometimes they were impromptu, 
and then there were and then there were there were dates you know which usually occurred in the evening and there was you know the process for setting up the date i mean and, and as far as like the joys and the hardships like i mean i would say generally the the things that i was doing weren't usually the source so much of the hardship i mean it was it was more the psychological emotional stuff that was the hardest um and and probably also the source of the source of my greatest joy i mean one of the things that that was really exciting and wonderful about zendik for me was like the various romantic relationships that i had and none of them lasted they were all sort of doomed from the start you know a, a lot of them were were quite wonderful while they did last so can you tell us about the dating process so like i said when i first showed up the pattern was that like sam attracted to a guy and i want to get together with him i would ask one of the dating straighters straighter was short for administrator to hit up this guy to go with me on a walk or a date. A walk meant just hanging out together, talking, groping, kissing, whatever, but you're not getting naked. A date meant yes, getting naked and having sex, either, you know, oral or penetrative or both. But before before going on a date, there was an additional step to take. Before I went on a date with someone, I had to get specked. Specked, getting specked means being checked with a speculum to see if I was fertile like able to get pregnant at the moment or not and if maybe I could get pregnant then I was not allowed to you know have intercourse and if it looked pretty good then I was and as far as where the dates occurred we had we had a few tiny shacks just big enough for a bed and a nightstand they were called date spaces and that's where you would go to have these dates because we didn't we didn't have our own rooms or anything we just had sort of spaces in larger dorm like settings so we would go to the date space um or you know sometimes if the date spaces were full just like go to the library or the barn loft or whatever and do whatever usually people didn't didn't sleep together that was really frowned upon it happened very rarely so you would go you would have your date you could stay up late if you wanted to but then you went back to your own beds and that's it and usually the next day there was some some expectation that you would talk with someone about what had happened and how it had gone especially if it had gone badly and then if you wanted to if you if you'd had a good time and you wanted to get together with that person again you usually had to do the process over like it wasn't like oh that was fun let's you know let's just do it again like no you had to go through the process i mean sometimes you know if you were really like in a relationship with someone things could get a little less formal um so it wasn't always like you have to do this whole process every time but usually usually you did so can you talk about the specking process was this done with a medical professional or was it just like a nurse yeah so there were just there were some women on the farm there was one older woman who had been you know who had been doing this checking other women's fertility for probably 20 years by the time i got there there was a younger woman who was sort of apprenticing to her so No, no no one was a nurse or a medical professional and, and there were other there were other things we were supposed to do to help make this more accurate like take take our temperatures um you know when you ovulate the temperature goes up to really depend on that because that relies on 
getting uh, regular amounts of sleep every night and taking your temperature at the same time each morning, which was difficult because of how we lived. So, I mean, I would say this method of, of gauging fertility, like, I don't think it's bunk. I think it actually is fairly effective. It was actually fairly effective, not 100% effective. And also it precluded um, the choice to just use a condom, like that wasn't allowed. And also it, it just inserted um, this other, you know, means of control that you had to go checked by some, get checked by somebody else. Um, I, I believe actually, you know, in real life, you know, a person could spec herself, you know, like, but it, it was just, it was just another way of kind of bringing, bringing sexuality out of the private, out of the private realm and into the, into the group realm. Uh, can you tell emotionally what was like the first time you got specced? Well, um, it was incredibly awkward to be in the room with all these women who were taking their pants off and just like sort of getting on the bed and having this thing inserted in them. And I was just like, really? I'm supposed to be here and just watch this? This is, this is crazy, but nobody really seemed to mind. And they were all like sort of laughing and talking and having conversations about sex and stuff. And, you know, there was sort of a camaraderie in the room that I was kind of happy to be invited into, even though I felt awkward. And, um, and then when I was asked if I wanted to try it, my initial reaction was like, fuck no. But, but then I was like, but, but wait a minute you know, this is one of these things that I'm here to experience. This is, this is like one of the, one of these like crazy, awesome, cool things that happens here doesn't happen in the outside world. And I just gave them all my money. So I might as well, you know, might as well kick in. And so I went ahead and did it. And, you know, I was, I was like, you know, it was very much like, oh shit, I'm doing this. And then when I actually did it, I mean, the, the woman who was backing me, she was very kind and gracious about it. And, you know, it was, it was okay. Were they checking for STDs or anything as well, or was it just pregnancy? The, the specking ritual really had nothing to do with STDs. So every new person who arrived at the farm, before they could get together with someone who already lived there in a sexual way, they had to go to town and get tested for STDs. I didn't have to do that because when I arrived at the farm, I had never had sex before no chance to get STDs. So I didn't go through that process, but everybody else did, you know, as long as they didn't arrive with virgins as well. I, I mean, I think that before my time, there might've been more problems with, with STDs, but when I was there, I don't remember really hearing about any, any STDs except for herpes. There were people on the farm who had herpes and the rule was, you know, someone has a, an outbreak don't get you can't get together with them if you don't have herpes yourself however i did i did end up getting herpes when i when i lived there was that really hard for you um yes and it was also it was part of a, a sort of much bigger um traumatic event um that i go into in in uh great detail in my book um I, I could go into it now if you like, but um, it, I would just say that get, getting the herpes ended up being sort of a side note to something much bigger that was happening for me at the time. Yeah, I'm going to leave a little bit of mystery for the people that are listening to the podcast so they have a reason to go check out your book. Yeah. But I do have a few more questions. 
So you said you guys were not allowed to wear condoms. Was there any form of birth control that you guys used besides the specking? Mm, no, um, no, there were no other forms of birth control. Um, the the condom the condom thing that came out of Wolf's distaste for condoms. Um, he really didn't like them, and so that's why you know they they weren't allowed. A number of years after his death. It was maybe I had been there for maybe four years, so maybe like about four years after his death, Errol did approve condom use in a limited way, get permission to use a condom. But yeah, that was it. The, the, the very limited condom use towards the end of my time there, and the this the specking and stuff, and that was it. Did anyone come onto the farm with any medical conditions you know besides herpes? Well, I mean there was. There was one man I'm thinking of who did probably who did have a have a mental illness. I think he was on medication for it, but I'm not sure. When I when I got there, um, I had been diagnosed with hypothyroidism, and I took synthetic thyroxine like you know every day. And once I got there, I was like, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> I didn't have money anyway, so I just stopped taking it. That didn't being a problem for me. As far as other medical conditions. There's nothing is really coming to mind. So they were pretty okay with you guys taking pills and stuff if you needed them. Yeah, I, I mean that was okay. Like I, I got a, um, I had a wisdom tooth pulled and I was given I don't know Percocet or something and like it was fine for me to take it. But we didn't really receive much outside medical care. Errol, Errol knew something about herbalism. She would often if people were sick she would often prescribe herbs for people to take we did a lot of enemas we really believed in enemas um we didn't go to the doctor very much i mean if somebody did go to the doctor and they were prescribed something like they could take it but that was just really rare did anyone ever like were there any ever accidents where someone like broke a bone or something and then how would you guys deal with that if that happened um yeah i don't I don't remember anything, anything like that happening when I was there. I do remember hearing about, I think this happened after I left. Someone got bitten by a black widow spider. You know, he was just taken to the hospital. Um, I, right, right before I left, I got um, chunk uh, taken out of my leg um, by a dog. And, you know, it was, it was a pretty serious gash. Errol's daughter Fawn just sort of treated it, put betadine on it, which we used for the horses when they got hurt. But, but yeah, I mean, if, if someone, if someone had had like a, an emergency, yes, they would have been taken to the hospital. So when you guys were in the dating process and you guys were getting more serious into a relationship, were you guys exclusive or are you guys dating other people as well? Well, that was kind of a tricky situation. I mean, in my experience, there were a few times when I really sort of got involved with one man and I and I didn't I didn't want to get together with, with anyone else um there were other times when I was with, with I was with one man but I was like also was having these other crushes um that I wanted to indulge and it was it was kind of a tricky thing just you know just being interested in one person um sort of a, a basic pattern at Zendik was that if two people, you know, got too close to each other, Errol or her daughter or someone else was likely to accuse them of like 
being square or being in a bubble or basically letting their interest in each other get in the way of their usefulness to the cause. So often when two people were like super into each other, they would be pressured to like have dates with other people also so that they so that they, they, they didn't, you know, implode, you know, as, as, as we said. So, so it, it was, it was kind of a, um, there, there were, there were, there were exclusive relationships that went on, you know, for varying lengths of time, but basically I would say they were, they were all doomed, except for Errol and Fawn. Um, in the time that I lived there, it, it was, it was simply not possible to truly be devoted to someone else and just, you know, stay with them. Um, after I left, that did change because Errol's daughter Fawn took on more power as I think Errol was sort of declining in her faculties, Fawn got married. This was this was crazy, you know, according to the Zendik farm that I knew, because we always totally denigrated marriage as something of the death culture, you know, just sort of a mutual defense pact. But once Fawn got married, other people also got married. So I think that aspect of life at Zendik did, um, did change after I left. Was there any sort of rules about who you could or could not date? Were you guys encouraged to date certain people at any time? I certainly experienced like a divide in terms of, in terms of hierarchy. It, it, I mean, it wasn't that I wasn't supposed to, uh, you know, hit up or date, you know, like men in the family. It's just that they were like not, they were pretty much not gonna say yes. You know, like I just, I just sort of wasn't, I don't know, wasn't attractive enough or important enough or whatever. Um, in, in, in my experience, I was much more likely to get involved with people who were sort of closer to my level. But other than that, no, I don't think there were really particular rules about it. Was anyone ever told, no, you can't date this person? Or was it personal choice? You just had to go through someone else? Mostly it was the latter, but sometimes if two people had, had been together for a while and Errol or someone else high up had decided that their relationship was toxic, then those people might be told, you are not allowed to get together with each other. So it was a toxic relationship, like one where they were just too involved in each other, too much of the deaf culture, or was it they were actively fighting and hurting each other? Um, it was, it was, it was the former and it, and I mean, of course, in hindsight, you know, from my perspective now, I would say most of these relationships, there was nothing wrong with them at all. Like the people, they were simply devoted to each other and really interested in each other and just wanted to be with each other. No, it was usually not because, you know, the couple was like fighting or hurting each other. Um, it was just that. Errol, you know, saw them as a, as, saw their devotion to each other as a threat to their devotion to her and to Zendik. Um, how did the farm deal with anyone that was homosexual? Well, there was some, like, encouragement for testing out your homosexual interests if you had them uh, in the interests of, of exploration. But... Wolf did say some things about 
homosexuality, indicating that he basically thought it was wrong. And there were, there, there was one man who lived at the farm for a long time, who was, who was gay. And he, he I mean, it, it, it seemed that he had pretty good relationships with like Errol and kind of the other, the people in charge. Um, but he was basically like, he was not going to, he, he was not going to find a relationship there. And, and I, I remember, well, actually there was an article written in the Washington city paper. Um, and the, the person who wrote that article, he, he, he reported talking with a woman who came to visit, uh, who, who was gay. And she told him that, that there were a bunch of male Zendiks were telling her, oh, you know, that lesbian stuff is bullshit. And if you move here, you'll get over it. So it wasn't, it, it, there, there wasn't much of that at Zendik. It was kind of dismissed. What made you want to leave the organization? Um, well, I never really got to that point. Um, I was kicked out. And at the time, at the, at the time that I was kicked out, I would say there were like slight cracks forming in my devotion. There were things that had happened. Like I had lost what I thought was my last best chance to have like a lasting relationship at Sendik. I had, I had noticed, uh, I had noticed a number of things that Errol had done that didn't quite make sense to me. I had had some critical thoughts about her, which might sound minor, but it was actually a really big deal. So there were fissures in my, in my commitment, but I in no way wanted to leave. I was, and, and when I did leave, because I was told that I had to, I, I was completely devastated. I felt like I was losing everything, that I had failed at the only thing on the planet that mattered at all. I was losing my home and my family and everything. And at the same time, I did feel just the tiniest bit of excitement and relief because I was going to be on my own with no one watching me for the first time in a long time. So there, there was a tiny part of me that was, that was, that was ready for some relief, but I was, I, and I was still utterly devastated. And I felt, I felt just, I felt doomed when I left. I felt this, like this, just this gnawing feeling of wrongness for quite some time when I physically left Zendik, I was still very much emotionally and, and mentally a part of it. And that didn't change for about a year, for more than a year after I left. Came to under, I finally sort of got the cult memo about 14 months after I left. Before that, other things had happened. I mean, this, this moment of realization that people sometimes have in cults, like, oh my gosh, you know, they're fucking with me, this is wrong. I had kind of a version of that, but it was after I was gone. Like I had this, this thing happen. I was back in New York City living with my mother. I had been gone from the farm for about a year. And I, but, but I still believed in Zendik. And I wrote to the farm asking if I could, if, if I could pay for some magazines and CDs and stickers to be sent to me in, in New York so I could sell them by myself on the street in New York. I mean, I was doing this out of self-interest because, you know, I thought maybe I would enjoy this and I could make money. But I also knew that this was kind of a generous thing to do for the farm, sending them money and they, you know, and they would send me some stuff and it would be good for them to spread their word. So I made this request 
And I just didn't hear anything like for a couple of weeks, maybe. And I remember having a feeling like, well, like, fuck them. I'm trying to help. Who are they to ignore me? And that was one of the first times that I really felt like, wait a minute, I'm being mistreated. But it took me a really long time um, to, to get to that point of kind of developing a little bit of a backbone and feeling like it's, it's not okay to treat me this way. So how was the process of you leaving? Like, was there a tribunal? Was it a big group of people? Or was it just one person that came to you? Yeah, so the sort of inciting incident of my departure was a selling trip I went on to Washington, D.C. I was not doing well, and the other members of my selling crew told me that I was a disgrace and I couldn't sell anymore and I had to go, you know, get off the street. This was, this was, this was really bad. Like, I knew when that happened, like, you know, this is, this is serious. We went back home and... Um, at that time, the farm had moved to West Virginia. We were all living in this, in one big house. And we had all, hadn't been there for very long. So we didn't even have kind of spaces to ourselves. Like I was just sleeping in a room with like four or five other people. I would roll my bedroll out at night and roll it up during the day. So I was sleeping just like one wall away from um, Errol's, uh, the, the dining room, which was where you know, Errol spent a lot of time and people will come there to talk to her. So I was just waking up and I heard the this woman who had been in my selling crew, I heard her talking to Errol and telling Errol what a terrible drag I had been on this selling trip and how mad it made her. And Errol said to this woman, she said, well, you know, you have to call a meeting and, um, you know, figure out what to do with her. And so, and this was something that Errol had done other times. When Errol had decided that someone should go, she would convene a meeting of everyone and tell the group that they had to decide about this person, but we already knew what we were supposed to say. So this meeting was called. I was not allowed to be in the meeting. I, I was outside. And then once they had decided, they had rendered their verdict, then I was invited in and, um, and, I, was, and I was told that I should go. And before, hearing this verdict, um, when I had been thinking about what might happen, I, I did have hope that my peers were going to come up with like some plan for me, like some like therapy I could do or s s some, some, you know, great idea for how I could reform myself. I, I had hope for that, but I also knew they might tell me to go. And but before, before the meeting, I really believed that if I was told I should go, I would beg and plead and I would grovel and I would pledge to do better. Um, I would do, do whatever it took to get them to, to, to tell me that I could say after all. But, but in the moment of being told you should go, I was just like, yes, you're right. You know, and, and at that moment, the, the sort of, there was, there was a tie that was severed, you know, like, and, and then I was on my own and then I just had to set about uh, figuring out my next step. I had no money, you know. Um, I had sort of, I was estranged from my family. I could have called my mother, um, but I didn't want to because I felt like I was failing because I was corrupt. I shouldn't run back to the people who were responsible for my corruption. I had to just, you know, make it on my own. And I also knew from having witnessed other Zendix leave that 
when, that when you left, it was best to leave quickly. Like there was no worse torture than hanging around Zendik Farm after you had become a pariah and a, and a traitor and a, like a non-person. So I just, um, you know, got into gear getting myself out of there. How was the transition from Zendek life to the outside world? It was, it was interesting. So um, what I did, um, I did ask for some money. I was given $10. I, I only took with me what I could fit in a small backpack, just like my, you know, clothes and a per- few personal items. Um, and I asked for a ride to the highway in West Virginia. So I was, I was given a ride to the highway and I decided to hitchhike to California. This was late September and I thought that would be a good idea because I might be sort of outside a lot and it would be warmer there. So I started hitchhiking and along the way, on my way out to, to California, um, I, I was mostly riding with, uh, with truck drivers. I ended up starting an affair with one of the truck drivers that I met and it was a, it was a strange, it was a strange relationship. I mean, it was, it, it was certainly not a good situation in the sense that I was just spending like days and days in this, in this truck. Um, but on the other hand, I actually did kind of fall in love with this guy and that gave the lie to my idea that it was not possible to like fall in love outside Zendik. Um, this, 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 this love interest kind of pulled me out and I, and I couldn't, I couldn't pretend that I didn't care about this guy. Like I knew that I did. So, but, but I, I basically, I, I spent maybe a month or so just uh, like in a really unstable situation, you know, like in terms of money, I would stay in this, I was staying in a hostel in Flagstaff, Arizona, part of the week, then driving in the truck for part of the week, trying to find a job, but really not just not wanting to do any of the things that I, that I might be qualified for. Like I had, you know, I had no resume for the past five years. So I, I spent a little while in total turmoil which, you know, pointed out to me, like, I couldn't keep doing this. So I moved to this place, um, also in Arizona, that I had spent time at before Zendik. It's called the Remus Mountain School of Self-Reliance. It's a wilderness homestead um, uh, about three hours east of Phoenix. I had been there before, and, you know, I knew it was was sort of a safe place where I would have, you know, good food and, um, you know, access to health healthcare, the, the, the guy who runs the place is, you know, an herbalist and a healer. Um, and it, you know, it was a place where I could have some stability. Um, and I didn't need money to go there and I didn't have money. So that worked out. So I went there for a little while and it, you know, I, I sometimes think of that experience as being kind of like methadone to Zendix heroin, um, in the sense that Rebus was also a place where like there, there, there was someone in charge, but he was, he was a really, kind and good person who actually cared about me and cared about the other young people who lived there. And, but, but it was, it was, it was fairly structured and I didn't have to sort of deal with, deal with like, you know, paying for things and rent and having a job and stuff. So it was, it was kind of a good place to land for, for a few months. And then I got a paying job uh, on an organic farm in California where I actually started to be able to make money and 
but I still believe in Zendik. So I was like, I have to get back there. And in order to get back there, I have to cut down my death culture fantasies. And my death culture fantasies involved traveling to Australia and New Zealand and Hawaii. So I saved money to do that. Anyway, but the short of it is that I was sort of thrown out into what I considered the death culture. And because of that, I was forced to start relying on and making friends with people who I like, you know, would have said were bad, you know, or just, you know, not enlightened when I lived at Zendik. And I, and I experienced, you know, like friendship and I experienced respect. And I noticed that a lot of these people, you know, in the outside world were actually treating me better than the people I had lived with at Zendik. And so even though I still, I was still a believer in Zendik and I still wanted to get back there, I was kind of having all these sort of like bodily experiences of, you know, maybe life out here actually isn't so bad. And that, and those experiences kind of prepared me when I, you know, um, prepared me when I did get wind of this cult pattern, uh, prepared me to, you know, to, to, be, to be able to accept it and, and kind of be freed by it. Okay, so since then you've written a book, obviously. What prompted you to do that? I just, I knew I was going to write a book kind of right after I realized that Zendik was a cult. My experience of of learning this about Zendik, about seeing that, that it fit this pattern, that it wasn't unique or a revolution or anything, was just an experience of ex- incredible liberation. I mean, once I understood that and I understood that I wasn't doomed, I didn't have to go back, that I wasn't a terrible person, I wasn't a failure, um, I just felt this incredible weight drop from my shoulders. I felt like happier than I'd ever been in my life. And, and what inspired me to write the book, one thing was just that I'm a writer and I had been trying to avoid that for many years, but writing is the thing that matters most in the world to me and so that's a natural response. But also, um, once I, you know, saw this pattern, I felt like I had experienced two miracles. And the first miracle was that I had managed to, to make real this false worldview, that I had stepped into Zendik and I had, I had, I had helped create this, this alternate reality that was all-encompassing. Like it, it was incredible to me that I had done that. And then the other miracle was that I had gotten out and that I was free. And, and, and I, I felt like um, I needed to tell the story of those two things. So I set out to do that. Okay, so if any of the listeners want to get your book, how would they go about doing that? Um, well, my book is available wherever books are sold. Um, you know, through your local indie bookstore. Um, it's in a number of libraries. Um, it's on Amazon, but it might be hard to get right now because they're deprioritizing paperbacks, deprioritizing books. Another great way to get it is at my um, website, HelenZuman.com. You can get a signed copy directly from me and I will take it down to the post office, which is still open and I will mail it to you myself. That's lovely. So is there anything else you want to share before we go? Well, I just, I would like to thank you um, so much for 
having me on your podcast. It's been, it's been a real delight. And I would also just like to say something about the relationship between cults and the broader culture. You know, that people who join cults are just, are just regular people who, you know, happen to match up with, um, you know, a, a, a particular group that appeals to them for, for one reason or another at a particular time. Um, but as I see it, you know, part of what is fascinating about cults is that they can show us what's missing from the larger culture. I mean, if, if, if like, if, if people are joining, are entering cults in order to, um, you know, find meaning or belonging, well, that could be a signal that, you know, that, um, other forms of meaning and belonging are, you know, are, 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 are lacking in, in the mainstream. So, and I would also just like to say that strangely enough, I having composted the experience and turned it into a source of fertility. I, I really, I really value, I value, um, my experience. It's, it's become part of me and it's brought me, um, many uh many amazing friends i really love and admire many people i went through this experience with yeah that's about it okay well thank you so much for sharing your story with us it was really fascinating i love hearing about cults and this is a new experience with me because i don't get to meet very many people that were are involved in cults and actually want to speak about it Mm -hmm. yeah so thank you so much for writing your book and reaching out i'm so glad we get to have this talk awesome you're welcome thank you